LinkedIn presents. I also used to have a lot of competition, internal competition with other people. Not like public facing, but just being like, well, why are they getting this? Like, I'm just as good and all this kind of stuff. Or, you know, we're the same. And and a lot of that was my anxiety because I hadn't worked through and I didn't do like the inner work, you know. And now, now I'm just so much more at peace. I'm like, I can only be me. I'm Sophie Santos. If you want Sophie Santos, fuck yeah, let's do it. If you don't, okay, you want someone else. Welcome to Entrepreneur Struggle, where each week we talk to founders and freelancers about their journey, creating and scaling up their business. My name is Chris Colbert, and I'm the founder and CEO of the media company DCP, as well as the video and podcast recording space, Podstream Studios, Times Square. This season, we are part of the LinkedIn Podcast Academy, so make sure to check out our show notes for information about our weekly newsletter and live events. In this conversation, I'm talking to comedian, actress, and writer, Sophie Santos. Sophie has done some amazing work, including a new one-woman show that currently has her out in Edinburgh. She's incredibly funny, super talented, and so we laughed a lot throughout this conversation as we talk about the challenges of working in the gig economy, how she manages an unpredictable schedule, what it's like organizing a one-woman show, and how she's been able to manage her OCD in both her personal and work life. Before we get to all that, we start with what made her want to be an entertainer. I first realized that I wanted to be an actor when I was a kid and I watched The Parent Trap with Lindsay Lohan. Oh, oh that was just funny. <laughs> I, I automatically thought the, the original. Yes. Okay, I did like, I now that I'm uh, older, I do really respect that one and I'm like, oh, that was great. But at the time, of course, when I was, because I'm a 90s kid, I would be like, no, Lindsay Lohan's is better. You know, <laughs> and I like definitely had a chip on my shoulder about that. Um, but... Yeah, I watched that and I was like, I want to do that. I want to have a British accent, you know, and it's just sort of that you don't really know what Hollywood is. You don't really know what acting is, but you just kind of see something and you're like, wow, this is really cool. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, it kind of went away because I was like, you know, I was a kid and just had a lot of interest as a kid. But then eventually uh, I started doing theater in high school. And then it wasn't until really when I was in my 20s that I started to take it seriously and after uh, three colleges, <laughs> I finally start, majored in theater, and then that sort of sprung everything. I got a really cool job at the Berkshire Theater Festival, which brought me to New York, and then I was doing theater in New York, but just was like, oh, you know, I don't think I'm that girl that's going to be wearing pastel dresses at these cattle calls in character shoes, if anyone knows what that is. Um, shout out to all the theater people who understand that. Um, so I started to basically do comedy because I was like, a comedy was something I did grow up on. I watched a lot of comedies and also my cousin is a comedian. And so I kind of grew up in going to comedy clubs as starting at like 16. But it was always one of those things that I was like, oh, I, I can't do this. This is this is too hard. Mm -hmm. But it was definitely one of those things where I knew deep down I that was really what my calling was. And so anyway, so I, yeah, I started doing that. I was in New York, started taking classes at UCB and and then from there, you know, a lot of opportunities sprang from that. But it really was sort of a journey of, Okay, figuring out that I love theater, figuring out, I, you know, not just theater, but I love performing, and then being like, okay, so if I want to be really good at this and I want to have, like, you know, the best sort of game, where do I go? And at the time, uh, this was the heyday of UCB, so Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, I was like, well, i got to go to comedy school. And so, um, you know, I worked uh, at restaurants and put myself through comedy school, essentially, and, and, uh, and that's where I started meeting 
uh, some of the collaborators that I still work with today. So that was kind of how it all really started. That's the very beginning. Like when you were first, I guess, because it seems like there was like iterations throughout your life. Okay, I want to do this acting thing or comedy or whatever it might be. But then you kind of pulled back. Was part of that just thinking like, I can't actually make a financial living doing this? Yeah, because I would... Uh, I was a military kid, so I grew up in a bunch of places, but specifically uh, at this point in time, like when I was in middle school and high school, I lived in Alabama in a very small town uh, called Arab. Probably not a lot of acting and comedy opportunities. <laughs> not down there. a lot of acting and comedy opportunities. Um, and so I was like, how does a kid from Arab make it, you know, in, you know, in Hollywood? Like, I don't, you know, and I would look up people. I don't know if you did this, you know, sort of as a as a business person, but I would start to look up actors that I really liked and I would see like how did they make it? And I would see like what schools they went to, what, you know, what classes, who did they study with, what cities were they in? And I saw that Channing Tatum was from Decatur, Alabama. And I was like, "Okay, so you're saying I can be Channing Tatum, like the universe, right? So I was like, that's okay, this is this might actually happen. But you know, it's hard when you, yeah, when you don't go to because I wasn't a kid that, you know, went to NYU or went to any of these art schools that basically are kind of pipeline programs mm-hmm. and for good reason that filter kids from college into uh, into the entertainment industry. So I was like, it was a, I kind of had to be a little scrappy about it. Yeah. Well, I feel like Channing Tatum took the Chippendales route into the industry or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> and I did too. <laughs> yeah, you just got to Google. You'll see it. <laughs> and like, yeah, like you were saying, you had to put yourself through acting, uh, uh, comedy school and all that, you know, doing yeah. waiting. And I feel like that's a huge part of the entertainment industry is like waiting tables, being a host, like all the, yeah. the gig economy stuff just so you can get into another gig economy. Yeah, because it is a gig economy, and I think, and not to get, like, downtrodden right now, but because of the strike, you know, a lot of people are realizing, like, yeah, it is the entertainment industry at its highest form. Like, think if you think about your favorite actor, the most famous actor, the most famous writer, director, whatever, Chris Nolan, it's a gig economy. It literally is freelance, because they're going, and yes, they're making a lot of money, but they're going from gig to gig and still not really sure where the next paycheck is going to be. Obviously, when you get to that level, uh, and hopefully you're, uh, someone gave me good advice, you know, keep your nut low. <laughs> That's what they always say. Is that appropriate to say? Yes. Yeah, okay. You're all good. But no, but if I like keep your, you know, make sure you know, like, you know, where that is. But other than that, yeah, it's still, it's freelance. So it's never not going to be freelance, which is, is actually something I started to learn this year, which is, which is good. But yeah. Well, especially, especially you started, when you're starting. Well, especially oh. as you started taking it more uh, serious as a business, and maybe you always always were taking it serious as a business. But yeah, how did you then map out that fluctuation of like how money comes in in the industry? Hmm. How did I map out my how how did I become financially responsible? There you go. Yeah, <laughs> I can say that. or have well, you become financially responsible? I guess is the better question. I'm just now figuring that out. <laughs> I'm I'm not. I'm my dad's here, so he's probably like, oh god. Uh, I have uh, not always been the most financially responsible, and I think that's because I've always just had really big dreams and really big goals, and I, I've i always been like, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I'm going to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'd have to sacrifice certain things, you know, um, and stuff that I probably, I probably like would, n- normal people would be like, oh, you didn't pay your credit card this month, but I'm like, but then now I got to go to comedy school, and the comedy school is going to get me the job opportunity, which is going to make me have the money, which is going to make me be able to get my credit back because you can always get your credit back, you know? So that's sort of the men- kind of wild mentality that I've had. But um, but it really took this year to really figure out, okay, 
uh, once I started living on my own, like I have, I finally like, you know, have my own place, which is really great because I've always had roommates or partners or whatever. And so now I have my own place and, and really figuring out what my budget is. Um, but yeah, and figuring out uh, once I, and then once I went kind of taking it back really quickly, I think I officially went freelance maybe three years ago. Okay. And it was uh, definitely, because I either make a lot of money or I make no money. And so I had like, and when I say a lot of money, just like something that could maybe support me for the year and just a normal middle class, low, low income to middle class, you know, lifestyle. And uh, I got like a writing job. This is a good example. I got a writing job and I was like, oh, great. I have money. I can do things. And then I was like, the next writing job is just going to come around the corner. And then it didn't for a month. And then it didn't for a couple months. And then now it's been like a year mm. and I've had things in between but that was a really hard lesson for me because I was like, wow, I should have put back some of that money because that was really dumb of me to think that just because I have this one really cool writing gig that now it's either the show's going to sell or now I'm going to automatically have, you know, a, a gig right around the corner because it doesn't work like that. Yeah, it doesn't always flow in the same way. No, so it's a learning. So I'm literally learning now. It's, it's, it really has been like this year has been really informative and, and really probably the last probably the last year and a half two years is like, and that's because I, yeah, I, I made some mistakes and now I'm like, okay, cool. So what happens if I don't get a job? What, what can I do? Do and, I have something to fall back on? Yeah. And then have like, you know, I think it's, it's always good to have, you know, some sort of survival job or, you know, I'm lucky now I don't have to work in restaurants, uh, anymore, uh, which is, you know, if it's your passion, great. But so I can always do like freelance writing things, which is nice, but yeah, you gotta, it's, uh, you gotta learn the hard way sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> which I have in a lot of areas. <laughs> well, and growing up in a military family, like I, I understand that you moved around a lot growing up too. Mm -hmm. Like, has that upbringing given you anything positive in terms of like how you approach business or just even your kind of lifestyle now? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, a couple things. A, because we moved around so much, I had to. I sort of had this philosophy philosophy of sink or swim. So it was like when I show up in class as a first grader and I'm at my new school, I can either sit in the back of the class or I can go around and <laughs> shake everyone's hand with a very <laughs> firm handshake. No dead fish, like my dad would say. Um, and uh, I think that was just innately part of my personality. You know, like you can teach those things, but I always was sort of an outgoing kid. So I, I feel lucky that I kind of was like that, you know, and both my parents are very outgoing. But yeah, I mean, so the fact that I was moving around a lot was huge, and then also the fact that I sort of had to pull myself up by the bootstraps and make a first, make a good first impression on day one, you know, for Miss Rast, you know. <laughs> so, and then in addition to that, my dad would take me to like military parties, and because uh, he was a lieutenant colonel, and so he would take me to like parties where we would, you know, meet with the general or whatever, whoever he was working with or working for. And so from an early age, he taught me how to have a firm handshake. Um, so I was already sort of conducting myself like a little mini general when I was six <laughs> years old. <laughs> so it's sort of, yeah, it was these life skills that, you know, that honestly it's, it's you know, it's I've grown up and always sort of had that in the back of my brain to, to be a professional no matter what it was. And so it, I happen to be in the entertainment industry, uh, but it's, it's made me, um, yeah, I think, uh, always try to be reliable and, and just be as most professional as I can. And it just so happens that I'm also in the entertainment industry. So, Yeah, I didn't grow up in a military family, but I moved around a decent amount growing up. And I feel like 
kind of like you were saying, I, I learned very early how to make friends fast. Like I learned how to be yeah. very personable. I learned how to also blend in into different rooms and different cultures. Yeah, like very being quickly. like a chameleon. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And it definitely, I feel like, helps as you get into the business world because, yeah, you go in and out of different rooms. You have to quickly learn what's moving, you know, what is motivating people when yes. you walk in the room so you can then, you know, be, you know, uh, uh, be attractive to whatever it is that they're looking for. And so I feel like in the entertainment industry, that's probably served you really well. Yeah, yeah, because as a kid, I'm like, oh, Lisa Frank is hot right now. So I got to figure I got to get the best Lisa Frank binder, mom. We got to go to Walmart <laughs> right now, you know? And uh, yeah, and so that's, yeah, and so that's what's helped me of just, I don't know, just sort of trying to connect to people. Because the thing is, is like, it does come from a genuine place. I'd like to think it comes from a genuine place as, you know, as much as it can, you know, from me, because I genuinely like getting to know people. And I get genuinely like uh, meeting people from all walks of life and figuring out what motivates them because it's, you know, I don't know, that's just, it's cool. And so, um, but yeah, but learning how to really be present and, you know, knowing when to listen, I think is huge. Yeah. And then when the doors open for you to talk and just kind of gauging the flow of a conversation, I think, you know, is what has also helped me in the entertainment industry. And again, I think it could go for any industry, but just sort of just conducting yourself in a way that's, you know, like a decent person. I don't know. Has that kind of helped you too when you first started getting gigs? Like obviously now I'm sure there's kind of a snowball effect and you have a, probably a team around you that helps you find gigs. But I'm sure early on, like you mentioned, you didn't go to NYU, so there weren't necessarily those doors that were already open to you. Did some of that, you know, really help you find some gigs? And, and I guess they, you know, find the opportunities and, and be able to, to develop a relationship with the gatekeepers. Yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, I knew that UCB was huge. And so, and I had actually started doing sketch comedy right before I took classes. And I was like, oh, I think there might be, I might be onto something here, but I need to get the training. Um, and so once I started going, I kind of had a little bit of a leg up because I had started writing probably six to eight months prior. Mm -hmm. But then once I was in, I was just like, yeah, I, I'm going to subscribe myself to your sort of system or your way of doing things, right? Because everyone, every comedy school has their own way of like writing a sketch and you can either fight it or just go, yeah, okay, this is your way. So let me, yes, and you, right? Yeah. Which also is the whole thing of improv. And so I found myself really just loving being in the room. And I also really had this pretty great connection to my teacher. Um, and from the beginning, we were, I could tell, it's like, oh, we kind of have the same writing brain. So that was 101, and then I ended up taking 201 with him again. And then from there, uh, just because I just, I just went like 150%. I was like, I'm just going to give this my all, and I'm also really loving it, and I'm having the most fun I've ever had. And then from there, I think, uh, whether it was just, I was naturally getting better because I was doing it all the time, every day, anytime I could, or uh, or whatever it was, but he ended up getting me my first writing job at MTV. Oh, wow. So I was still a student, and he recommended me for a writing job. Um, and from there, that sort of him yes-anding me gave me the confidence to go, oh, actually, I can do this. Because I remember being in the room, and it was like a writer for Letterman, a writer for like some CBS show. And then it was like me, this Sketch 201 student, hadn't done anything yet. But I was able to kind of, I was like, okay, well, don't be an imposter. Just... You're here for a reason. Yeah. And so I really took that opportunity to kind of have confidence in myself, but also just really learn from the people in the room. And then from there, yeah, the gigs are coming. So sort of to answer, that's a long way to answer your question is like, I didn't have the NYUs or anything like that, but I did know that 
even the kid that kids that went to NYU, they still all went to UCB. So if I can just be in that system and and just sort of you know go 150 percent, you know, and with a little bit of talent, something will probably work out. Um, and yeah, and then luckily it's it started to. You know, I feel like the entertainment world, and especially in comedy, like schedules are so just all over the place. And I'm yeah. sure you travel a bunch too. Like I know we'll talk too about you know your upcoming gigs, but how do you manage that just? I guess, unpredictable schedule and, and mm. kind of planning your life around it and even trying to plan gigs around all that. <laughs> yeah, I think I just always have my calendar open. I'm like, unless I'm like booked on something, I'm just like, I always know that at any moment I could get something. And I just, I, I don't know, I kind of like plan to not have a plan. I definitely have like a set like if there are major things that I'm doing, it's like, okay, I will have to say, like, for example, I'm going to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in a week. No. <laughs> well, I fly to London in a day. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so maybe I need a schedule. <laughs> um, but, and then I think Edinburgh is like a week. But for example, so, so then I had to tell my commercial agent, hey, mm -hmm. I'm going to be gone, right? So I had to block yeah. that out. But for the most part, you kind of can't. And then as things start to stack up, then you have to start prioritizing. It's just all about priorities and and I think it's just part of, you just know, like at any given moment, something could something could change. And that's kind of the fun of it, to be honest. So that, you know, I have my own schedule as far as like making sure that I'm taking care of myself and mental health and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, the kind of fun is at any moment, something major could come around the corner, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Well, I know you wrote your memoir too, and a lot of that delves into like the mental health space. Like what made you want to be just so open and honest with that? And I'm sure it's even in like your comedy and things like that, you're just very open about your own personal experiences. Like what made you want to kind of have that kind of presence? Well, I think with the book, it really started kind of came out organically because I was, the, the premise of the book, so it's a comedic memoir, but it was like me figuring out uh, my journey and figuring out my my identity because it's called the one you want to marry the one you want to marry and other identities I've had but really just like going from this tomboy kid to uh, this tomboy kid who played tackle football uh, with the boys only girl in the league just gotta say that out there <laughs> um, and then uh, then I hit puberty and became a pageant queen which is very real and then and went to the University of Alabama was a sorority girl there and then eventually. Uh, found comedy and became a lesbian. And so it was like, I was trying to map that trajectory first. And then I realized by looking through, looking at all these different points in my life, oh, there was a lot of anxiety, underlining anxiety. And I couldn't really tell the story fully without explaining that, oh yeah, moving around, I was a chameleon, but also I had like crippling OCD that was undiagnosed because that was the only thing I could control because we were moving around so much. And I, on the outside, I was like, ha ha ha, everything's great. But on the inside, I'm like, the only thing I can control is, you know, doing these compulsions. Mm -hmm. And I was actually really, so I kind of discovered the mental health aspect. I mean, I knew I had anxiety and I had, I had, you know, had things with OCD before, but it really was writing the book. I finally realized that that's what was going on. And then I was like, well, yeah, I have to tell this story and be a hundred percent truthful. And so it kind of happened organically that way. And then now I do talk a lot more about my mental health because, A, I feel uh, I've done the work to, you know, combat it and or not even combat it, but to sit with it, mm -hmm. you know, sort of sit with your fear with it. And also, um, yeah, and because, I, because I've done the work uh, and I, I'm not as scared about it anymore, I, I feel free to talk about it. So 
yeah, it was a sort of weird journey where it's like, oh, it actually feels good to talk about it. Yeah. And I can make fun of it. I'm not scared that if I talk about it that, <laughs> I'm not scared that if I talk about my compulsions that actually my mom's going to die, you know, like, which is a thing with OCD when you have yeah. compulsions and stuff. It's like, oh, I can actually talk about it and things are fine. Is that something that you still, especially with OCD, like something that you still have to manage even, you know, in your work life? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I have bouts of OCD all the all the time, every day. But now I'm I am able to say more freely to it if there's a compulsion coming on me, like I no, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Like I just I just tell it. I'm like I'm no, I'm busy, you know. And sometimes I'll let. Sometimes I kind of give in, but for the most part, I am feeling more confident just saying no. I'm okay. I'm safe. I don't have to tap three times and think that if I don't, something's going to happen to a loved one you know, or whatever that may be. But for a while, I was not dealing with it. And it really was impacting my stand-up. It got to the point, probably right before the pandemic, that I was so scared to go on stage. And because I always said, if it's not impacting my work, it's not impacting my comedy and me as a performer, then it doesn't matter. But I was white-knuckling it the whole time. Mm -hmm. And then it got to the point where it started to affect my performance and then I didn't want to do shows because I didn't want to leave the house and then I was like oh it, this is probably a problem maybe I should work on this <laughs> it has to get like to that level before yeah. you fully take hold of it yeah totally it's you know I have uh PTSD and it's something where I didn't much like you were kind of saying I didn't notice it because I'm just like you know I'm focusing on the work I'm focusing on you know to the same point of view like okay it's not getting in the way of anything but just the more I ignored it the worse it was actually getting uh, and once you speak it out in the truth and actually recognize and recognize the signs that kind of warn you of when you're you're in those white knuckling kind of situations, mm -hmm. the more that it's manageable, but also again, the more free you feel in talking about it, which then on the opposite side, I know people that, you know, when I talk about it on social media or things, it now helps others to feel like, okay, one, I can recognize it within myself too, yeah. but also feel more free to be open and speak about it. Um, and so I feel like it's it's like a snowball effect of you helping yourself, but also helping others, especially because you're such a public figure at the same time. I think yeah. what you know, you being open with that is actually a great benefit for many other people. Yeah, I have a, this character that is in my solo show coming up, uh, my OCD character. So I play my personified OCD, and he wears a trucker hat that says OCD, and. I do have people already commenting, being like, I wish my OCD had a trucker hat. <laughs> and I'm like, well, soon I'll sell merch and you can get it. <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, I have noticed that. And I think I started to really notice it with my book because I really talked a lot about my anxiety and the mental health aspect and and also like clinging on to these, the girls that I was, that I girl girlfriends that I was, like actual girlfriends or friends that I was, girls that I was friends with and not realizing that I crushes on. And because I always... I, got, I started to realize, oh, wow, I have, like, severe abandonment issues, and so I'm now holding on to them for dear life and suffocating them and suffocating the relationships. And so I talked a lot about – I mean, I, I kind of scratched the surface in the book, but I definitely talk about it now on my show, and those are things that a lot of queer people started DMing me about, being like, oh, my God, yeah, I did this too, right? Because I don't I, – it's not – it's a universal thing, mm -hmm. but I do think as queer people, people of color – there's something about like our experience where we're like any amount of control that we can have we we try to hold on to that yeah and not showing vulnerability well yeah because we're already vulnerable just sort of walking through life you know yeah. so that's yeah so it's it's been it's been nice to to hear that it's like oh you're not the only one who had this who've had these thoughts right 
that's actually kind of cool. So yeah, it's a, it, we're both helping each other, I think. When you like fully embrace, you know, being a lesbian, being in the queer space, did that or does it, you know, affect anything on the business side when it comes to writing or finding opportunities? I, I don't necessarily know if that really has the same effect in, in the entertainment space um, as maybe some other industries. But yeah, is there certain things that maybe you have to, certain challenges that you might have to face because of that identity? Um, no, I mean, because being queer is cool now. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to say it like that, but yeah, essentially. <laughs> No, 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 no. We're getting the money, getting the bag, man. We're, we're good. <laughs> this good. is our time. This is our time. Uh, no, I mean, I no, not really. Because by the time I like started doing uh, comedy, I was already out, and so, and in fact, because I had been in a small town in in uh, in Alabama and, and then Mississippi, me coming to uh, when I came to New York, I was like, oh my god, there's not just two lesbians. Yeah. There's like, <laughs> there's like you know, everyone's kind of queer. So. If, in, in fact, I felt more embraced, and then, but by being specifically in the industry, no, I just I'm never really worried about it. I'm like, I this is my experience, and I think no matter what your experience is, whether you're queer or not, I think it's always important to literally talk about your unique perspective, and and that's something I've always subscribed by. So I think just by doing that and just saying, okay, what is my actual point of view, mm -hmm. is what's going to make you you know feel. It just feels like once you own your point of view, then then I think the success comes from that, just because you're actually being truthful. But in fact, by me really embracing my identity and all of my identities by being queer, by you know realizing, oh my God, I'm not, you know, I'm I'm Spanish and Filipino. Like there's that going on too, and but I'm also an other. I was like, oh wait, I now I have a point of view because for a long time I didn't have a point of view because I was that chameleon. And I was like, oh, but I'm just all these other people. I'm yeah, just doing. Just, I'm just blending. I'm blending. And then I was like, no, no, this is cool. That now I can now I have something to say. And it wasn't until I embraced it and I felt like I had something to say that other people were like, I want to hear what you have to say. So it never really was a challenge. If anything, it was just an internal struggle of me trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to say. And and now that I have figured that out, it's it, it's been great. But people, yeah, they it's been yeah it's 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 been great. And yeah, people, I think they do want to hear from unique perspectives right now. The day is in, I don't know, gatekeepers, the industry, but just, you know, your everyday person. I yeah. think they're they're ready for it. Well, I guess I also was thinking too on like the acting side, you know, I didn't know if maybe you get pigeonholed in a certain, uh, oh. uh, you know, gigs. Well, okay. <laughs> so, yes. I don't get as pigeonholed with acting and I have really good, I have great reps, but I was working with this one company, which I'm not going to say their name, but I was working with this one, because uh, I also do voiceover, one voiceover company, and I had specifically said, my Spanish isn't that great. I can do an accent, but I, I'd i rather let me get better at it because I I can do a lot of accents, but for whatever reason, the Spanish accent, I always feel like I feel like I'm being racist, <laughs> even though like I can't. Against yourself. Yes, I'm like I feel racist right now. I was like, let me just figure this out. I said, you can do Australian, you can do German, you can do whatever you want, but just let's not do Spanish right yeah. now. But I I'm gonna work my way up to it because I do understand that, you know, I get it, Santos, and it probably helped me. But they were like, okay, cool, and then all they did, the only auditions they sent me on were Spanish. And I kept being like, hey guys, like I can do Disney kid, I can do all these things, let's tap into my strengths. And then the only thing they kept sending me was Spanish. And I was like, this is the first time I've actually dealt with someone who was a little like, I don't, I, racist is such a strong thing to say and I try to not just call people out, but it was just like so tone deaf. Mm -hmm. And it was only because my last name was Santos. And I was like, guys, you also, you heard my voiceover reel. I don't even have a Spanish accent on oh. there. It's kid, it's Disney kids, it's like, 
it's a dove commercial. You know what I mean? So that was the one time where I was like, oh, this is this is weird. You're making me the Spanish. You're making me your Spanish client. So I left them because they weren't tapping into my strengths. But that was really the only time that I've had something significant like that happen. Gotcha. Well, and you mentioned before you're gearing up to go out to Edinburgh mm -hmm. you know, with the One Woman Show. Tell me a little bit more about the One Woman Show and what made you want to do this. Well, I've always wanted to go to Edinburgh because it's just like, it's the coolest experience. And like a lot of comics that I look up to have gone and it's kind of like a rite of passage. And, you know, like the Phoebe Waller Bridges of the world, like they go there and, you know, I'm not saying that every time, not, or not, not every person who goes there gets to end up having a TV show and then gets to be an Indiana Jones, but <laughs> not saying it can't happen. So you got to get there first to see if you get to be an I'm Indiana Jones. I'm sure there's one Jones. more movie in, in, in Harrison Ford. You got, you got time. You I got get time. There. Don't worry. We're, we're, we're happening. It's happening. Um, so that was a big thing, but I also just, I really wanted to sort of put myself to the test, see if I could come up with a one person show. Like, what does that look like? And it took me a minute to figure out what story I wanted to tell. But yeah, I mean, it is like the premier festival. And I know that any, any of my friends that have gone, it's changed their careers. And in the sense of just like, they become better performers, you know, you, you're meeting thousands of people, you're, you know, directors, producers, you know, touring agents. And so you're really sort of on this, the biggest stage and putting yourself out there. And, and it's like you're an introduction to the industry. And I really wanted to give myself that opportunity. And I also, in addition to that, wanted to tell a story that I was really passionate about. And so I had to wait till I figured that out. But yeah, so that's like one of the big reasons. Yeah. And it's just, you know, being in Edinburgh for a month, like it's cool. You're going to be in castles. <laughs> but and I'm sure like in developing that, and I'm sure you're just always, just the brain is always going, but especially around that development, like was it a lot of sleepless nights? Because you're probably just like all the time just thinking about, oh, I want to do this now. Like, I, I want to change this part of the story arc. Like, is yeah. it hard to shut your brain off with all these ideas coming through? No, I know. I have not slept in, in about a year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is hard, especially. And then there's the terror. You're like, oh, God, what if I don't remember it? Like, what if I, what if I fall on my face? You know, those nights are, have happened recently. Um, but yeah, it is because it's, it's ever evolving, right? Yeah. And so you're like, because it's funny, like I had a vision the show one way and, and when I, thinking about where it was even a year ago to where it is now is like, it's so different and for the better. But yeah, it is always thinking, okay, how can I punch this up? How can I punch this up? How can I shorten this? You know, what's, you know, thinking about a moment that either did really well or didn't do that great. Yeah, it's, it's hard. And it's also, I think a lot of people don't realize that I, I think is important to say is, I'm not just writing and rehearsing my show. I'm coordinating with my producers. I'm coordinating with the photographer to get all the press materials out. I'm court like I have producers and that has taken so much weight off my shoulders, but I still have to write the copy for any of the and by copy or like the blurbs and the log line and the and, the, and just like the little snippets of what the show's about. You know, I have a publicist and she's emailing me every other day, like, I need you to do this Q&A and it's due in 48 hours and it's 15 questions of who you are, what, what, how did the show come about? And they're all a little different, so I can't just copy and paste, right? And you want it to sound good because it's in, you know, Broadway world or it's in The Guardian or whatever it yeah, is. It's going to be one person's only opportunity to, to see what this is about. A hundred percent. So it's like, I'm wearing 3,000 hats and then like, uh, I have an amazing director and I have uh, an amazing uh, Matt Stone, who's fantastic. He he directed The Office and Parks and Rec and he did like most of the Muppets Mayhem, which just came out. And so it's great to have him. Um, and so that's that's been helpful. But also like, you know, him and I have collaborate a lot because he wants to go off my vision. 
Um, and then I also want to shout out my other producer, Kimberly Pierce, who, do, who did uh, Boys Don't Cry. But like, you know, even though I have all these people at the end of the day, like they can't be doing these Q and A's for me because it's, it's my perspective. So, and it's my voice. So I'm coordinating and I'm coordinating with the lighting designer. So it's like every day, it's not necessarily, oh, like sometimes the last thing I get to is the show. Yeah. And, you know, one day it probably won't be like that, but right now that's just kind of what's going on. And, and it's, I think when I first decided to do Edinburgh, I was like, oh, I'm just gonna write my show and then go and do a couple things here and there. And then what I realized is, oh, you're doing, you're, you're writing and, and performing the show is, is actually what you get to do as a byproduct of it all, yeah, which you, is you have the crazy thing. this full time job to help support you being able to do and the fundraising because you have to raise uh, like fifteen thousand dollars. That's you like, know? so you've been doing crowdfunding for that. Crowdfunding, yeah, and I'm still you know raising a little bit more just because like there's always little things that, like now we have to rent a van from London to Edinburgh <laughs> to take things, you know, and it's you know it's a learning process, right? So you budget as much as you can, and then because it's the first time I've gone, I'm like, oh, I didn't didn't realize that this theater doesn't didn't have this thing, right? Or whatever but yeah so it's a it's a marathon but you're also yeah you're, you're you're wearing a lot of hats but it's it's crazy but i also like i thrive off this stuff but yeah yeah how do you deal with whether it be in auditions or being on stage like rejection from you know a, a gig that you're trying to get or the audience like how do you are you able to compartmentalize that or is that something you sometimes take personal i used to take it personal a lot a lot and i also used to have a lot of competition internal competition with other people not like public facing, but just being like, well, why are they getting this? Like, I'm just as good and all this kind of stuff. Or, you know, or we're the same. And and a lot of that was my anxiety because I hadn't worked through and I didn't do like the inner work, you know. And now, now I'm just so much more at peace. I'm like, I can only be me. I'm Sophie Santos. If you want Sophie Santos, fuck yeah, let's do it. If you don't, okay, you want someone else. And I really started to have peace. I went up for, I had a callback for this, ABC show, which was really cool. It was a multicam show, and um, and I don't think it ended up going where I don't know. Maybe it did. I mean, this was I think a pre-pandemic, and I ended up going against one of my really good friends, and we shared each other's tapes to each other, and I just had so much joy watching her because I was like, oh, she's doing Ashley, and I'm doing me, and we're just so different. Yeah, and that's okay. And if they want her, awesome, give her her flowers. And if they want me, awesome, you know. But I I just have so much more peace now because. And I think that's also because I do work on my own stuff and I have my own show and like no one can do this show. Maybe there'll be a show about OCD when I get there. Maybe there'll be a show about a breakup, a queer breakup. Okay. But it's not going to be from their, it's going to be, it's going to be from their perspective. Mm -hmm. I have my own perspective and I just have, yeah, I think I, I remember when I was in college, the, the professor, one of my professors was like the actors who are the most successful are the ones that are able to go into an audition, do their thing. When they leave, they forget about it. And it took me a long time to get there because you just have to just go. You gotta just you gotta. Ta I don't I don't know how to train you to tap into that. You just maybe it's a little bit of age, but you just have to. You gotta get to that sort of zen place. Um, and but yeah, I mean of course, like if there are things that I really want, I, I I get disappointed. But there's always another opportunity around the corner. And a lot of times when I find if I don't get something, internally I was like, did I really want this? Mm. Because I didn't get it, and it hurts. But did I really want to spend six months doing this particular thing? And a lot of times I find out, oh, I didn't. Or I had this. I have this other thing that comes into my worldview, and I'm like, oh, I wouldn't have had time to do that. 
yeah. if I was doing this. And that's actually happened more recently. So I didn't get something that I really wanted. And then I realized what I need to do for the Edinburgh show. And now I've had all this time to do the Edinburgh show. And I'm like, oh my God, if I didn't have all this time, this wouldn't have been good, you know? So sorry guys, I did the inner work. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm not sad. No, I mean, of course I get bummed, but like yeah. you just gotta, you just gotta figure out how to move on because it, it, the industry will just, I don't wanna be, I, I wanna live my life. I wanna enjoy what I'm doing. And I'm just, I'm just kind of starting out. Like I'm just sort of now making it. And like, it's gonna be a long career if I get upset every time I don't get the Marvel movie. I'm kidding. It's not happening. But if you want it to happen, call me. You know? <laughs> well, no, yeah, when I'm, Brie Larson gets my my roles, I'm just like, just how many times <laughs> do I have to go against her? And she got the car commercial and I was like, I can uh, drive a car. You just got to work on that Spanish. You, you, <laughs> I know. <laughs> She's really good at Spanish and it's really annoying. She might actually be. <laughs> But I actually, you know, I've, I've had that same realization too of a lot of times we, you know, we, we might miss out on a, a pitch that we thought we really crushed. And like when we find out, and actually we've landed gigs where just like once you get down to the final contract, all of a sudden something blows up and you end up not getting it. Yeah. Uh, and then you realize that, you know, four or five months later, oh, there was this bigger project that I now have the resources and the time to work on because yeah. I didn't take this other gig or because that gig didn't, you know, that fell through for whatever reason. So I very much am as woo as it sounds like I believe that things happen for a reason they happen when they're supposed no, to happen. So, like, yeah, you just kind of roll with it and just, you know, you have faith that whatever is coming next is going to be bigger and better for your career trajectory. Yeah, and I I think, too, and maybe this is a little too woo-woo for people, but also it's like I try to step into the mentality of, like, if money wasn't a factor, if this, if, you know, if, if money, because a lot of time money is a factor, right? And that's something that we have to deal with. And it's yeah. like, but if money wasn't a factor or whatever, these things weren't a factor. What do I actually want to be doing? Would I actually want to be doing this project? And if the answer is no, other than like, because I have a survival gig, then why am I really doing it? And should I really be allocating it to this thing that really speaks to me and I, and I do want to spend sleepless nights doing? And I think, I think if more people can get into that mindset which again, maybe it's a little controversial because I understand money's a thing. I get yeah. it. Like I'm a freelancer. I I I think I I totally understand that. But I think it's really just stepping into the mentality of if I really had everything I wanted, how would I be behaving? And and then sort of kind of walking that path. I think that's kind of the key mm -hmm. to things. Does that make sense? Oh, it definitely does. Yeah. And I think you kind of touched on this before too, but like in your, you know, going on auditions has kind of figuring out your own voice, figuring out your own identity allowed you to now go in the room and try to get a gig based on what you're bringing to the character as opposed to what you think that the casting directors want out of the character? Yeah, totally. I mean, I definitely read the breakdown and I'm not just like tossing it out being like, no, whatever. You know, like I, I want to honor the, because I'm a, I'm a writer, so I want to mm -hmm. honor what the writing is. But but yeah, I mean, a lot of times they're a little vague. And so it's like, oh, cool. I'm just, yeah, I'm going to come in and be me. But also, at the same time, it's like, I can be me to an extent. Like, if it's something, and that's something I've had to struggle with is because I am sometimes getting more serious roles. And I'm like, ooh, that's, I haven't touched vulnerability in a while. <laughs> like, I haven't been vulnerable in a while. I've kind of been the funny person. And so, okay, so are they really asking me to kind of be Sophie and, and be on and be funny? Maybe not. Maybe I should kind of, what's my version of, of this sort of thing? So it is kind of a... 
you know, ebb and flow. But for the most part, yeah, I'm bringing my personality. I'm bringing my point of view to it. And, and just sort of, it, I always just try to like serve the writing, serve what I believe their vision is, and just do that to the best of my ability. Nice. Well, uh, we probably touched on some of this too, but like, yeah, tell me about some of the great things that are happening right now. Obviously, Edinburgh is, is probably one of the biggest things, but yeah, anything else that's going on for you? So pretty much doing Edinburgh nonstop. Like I've, I've had to just, you know, everything else is on uh, pretty much on a pause. Um, so at this point, I'll probably be on like my sixth performance because we perform when we perform in Edinburgh, we perform every, si every single day for... 26 shows. Oh, wow. So that's, for a full month. That's exhausting. Yeah, it's exhausting. So I might be, uh, yeah, you might, I might, I might be just dead. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> in my, in my dorm room. Um, so someone check in on me. If you're out there, come DM me and say, are you okay? Um, but so that's the main thing that I've got going on. And then, um, you know, from there, hopefully, uh, I can bring it to New York. I'd love to bring it to New York and, and have some sort of off-Broadway run or something with it. But, um, but then, yeah, doing stand-up shows. I mean, obviously with the strike, we're not really sure. Um, I, uh, you know, I've got projects that I'm, that are, that have interest for like TV shows and stuff. But again, all that's on a pause. So really, it's just, you know, check me out on my website at sophiesantos.com. I'm always posting like where I'm going to be and what city. Um, I'm based in LA, but I perform a lot in New York. I also do the show called The Lesbian Agenda, which is a very serious show where we try to enforce our new world order. Um, like, I was laughing at some of those those videos on your website. Oh yeah, thanks. <laughs> like casting Rachel Weisz in every lesbian movie till she becomes a lesbian. Yes. That's one of the things. <laughs> um, and I I come to New York a lot to perform there, and that's uh, normally at the Bell House. So you know, be on the lookout for that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think for the first time, I always have like six projects spinning. For the first time, I'm just focusing really just on this one and. And then, you know, things will come into my, what do you call it? Not your purview. What's the your word? Your sphere, your, yeah, I, don't I, know. I yeah. keep saying worldview, but that's definitely not right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, in, things will happen. Into your space somehow. Into it's in my space, yeah. And, uh, you know, but really Edinburgh. So, yeah, if you are in Edinburgh, check it out. Sophie Santos is codependent. Um, you can literally type in Sophie Santos is codependent um, or Sophie Santos is codependent at Underbelly because that's the, the theater I'm at, which nice. is fun. And what's your social media? Social media is at Sophie E. Santos on Instagram. Um, I'd rather just follow, I'm on Twitter, but I'm not really on Twitter. Who's on Twitter? Yeah. Yeah. I was just having this conversation. We had a social no media meeting really earlier. I'm like, I think we need to get rid of Twitter I think soon. no one's really doing it. <laughs> and people keep trying. They're like, we're trying to keep making Twitter happen. And I like, I just, I can't do it. Um, so Sophie E. Santos on Instagram. Follow me there. And, um, and yeah. Oh, and also I do have a podcast. I have a sports podcast. Oh, actually, I didn't realize yeah, this. Okay, yeah. tell me about the sports podcast. I, I have did a not sports see podcast. This. No, well, it's so funny because it is something I do, and I'm I'm with a podcast one, and they're great. I yeah. I, I co-host a, a podcast called Hammered Heroes and Villains with uh, Brennan Fitzgibbons, very very funny guy, um, very funny comedian, and we talk about athletes. I'm a huge sports fan, so we talk about athletes who were high, drunk, or on drugs when they had epic performances. So, like, um, you know, Doc Ellis, Wade Boggs. Yeah. We uh, we just did Andre the Giant, Dennis Rodman. We could do a six part series on Dennis Rodman. That, I I was Dennis Rodman like three or four times for Halloween. As oh, a kid. were you really? I, Dennis Rodman was my favorite basketball player. Oh, he's the up. best. I'm actually on a, a a campaign that's on buses. Actually, it's in L. A. Too of me looking like Dennis Rodman. It's called the <laughs> Awkward Years campaign for Just Works. You'll see me on the side of buses. Oh my god, dressed up like Dennis Rodman. That's hilarious. <laughs> I want you to send that to me. Yeah, I mean, I'll show you a picture later. Obviously, he's got his things now. Like you know, definitely. 
you know, I, I'm not gonna say, okay, I said he's the best, but he has some things, you know, with Korea, which is yes. wild. A little problematic. Um, there. Yeah, he's problematic. But he, as far as like, I don't think we will ever see a player like him. I mean, we've got, do you, how, do you like, do you know sports? Oh, yeah. I know yeah, so he's, well. I think Pat Bev is like just a fraction of him. Yes. A fraction. Just a fraction. Fraction. Who's also now an announcer, which. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand know. how I don't that all worked that. out. Because they just wanted him to come on and argue with people. Like, that's what they wanted out of him. Yeah, I yeah like. and I'm like, okay, whatever. And I don't know, which team is he on now? Uh, he got traded he, three times again. Yeah, is he now on Dallas? I can't remember where he is now. He might Maybe be Maybe Mavericks? Dallas. Yeah. For I'm, now? Yeah, for Until now. the next trade. Oh, no. I think, no, he ended up in Houston. He's on Houston. God, and then does he have a family? Like, it's like three teams a year. No, I don't think he has a family. No. <laughs> Who could put up with him 24-7? I don't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, not at all. Pat Beverly, please don't come for me. Uh, but kind of I want you to. I'd, yeah. love to. I'd love to have beef with Pat Bev. But, um, but yeah, so... It, so that's been really fun, uh, and yeah, Dennis Rodman was is wild. I he I think it was before Game Six, he went out and partied and clubbed and uh, till like two or three o'clock in the morning, and was just like hammered. And then he came back uh, for Game Six uh, in one in one of their three peats. I think it might have been the last one. I I, I might be getting this it wrong. It was the last one. Yeah. Last one, and he ended up having like a double double, and it's like things like that that we talk about. And I'm like it because it's and then we also talk about like. Can you perform on drugs? And some some people are better versus, you know, obviously there's a lot of athletes that don't because you want to be in your optimal form. So it's really funny. We have a lot of comedians that come on. And sometimes we don't. So, like, if you, sometimes we have just, like, people who are sports fans. So if you ever want to come on. Um, but, yeah, we, we, we're kind of taking a little bit of a break while I do Edinburgh. And then when I'm back, we'll be kicking it into high gear. And hopefully, you know, we're thinking about, like, do, touring. And, yeah, because I'm just a huge sports junkie. So might as well you know, get a little paid to do it. Well, you know? I'll definitely check it out. And yeah, I might have to join you. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it's really, it's it's so much fun. Yeah, We actually have a, a business of cannabis show coming. And like on my list is just a bunch of athletes because I just want to know all the deep stories on how many, like how many of these guys are just high when they're playing, especially on the football side. Well, that's what we're trying to figure out because a lot of guys are now are trying to, you know, because they're in, they're in so much pain. Yes, exactly. Right? And so it's better for them to smoke cannabis versus to be on these painkillers. Yep. But finding out weed, finding out who's smoking has been a little hard because... Yes, now it's legal in most places, but it's not as, um, I think people are a little nervous talking about it still because they're, they're, they're becoming more open about it. But at least in the past, you really had to dig deep, you know, because then you also have your like, oh, what, Bill Walton? No, yes. Like yep. uh, the coach. Very hippie. Who's like a fish head. And you're like, you know that he was high all the time, yes. right? But you're trying to find out. But yeah, dude, if you find out, let me know because we have a, we have a couple um uh, oh God, what's his name? He used to, he's a wrestler. He died. He got murdered. He was a wrestler who got murdered and he used to do the blading where he blade his face. Oh. Um, which was like a thing that they did in the, in the nineties. Bruiser Brody. Oh, Do you really? know who Bruiser Brody is? I remember here. Yeah. Yeah. So he's a WWE guy. He got murdered. Oh my By gosh. another wrestler. And that wrestler got off. By the way, insane. But he was a big stoner, and so if you want to, is this one of your episodes? It is. One okay, of episodes. all right, great plug because yeah, you got yeah. me so interested right yeah, now. Yeah, no, and he's great. And then you learn about the blading, and it's like yeah, and then he had all these scars on his face because he would blade and just Holy to like crap. freak out his opponents in the audience. Yeah, that would have freaked me the fuck out. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. 
Yeah, but it's a it was it was a thing, and uh, and that but that's why you watched him. And he had like crazy. He's just like you know, he's just like this crazy guy, and eyes are bulging out. Yeah, he's wild. Well, this is a fun way to end the conversation. <laughs> uh, yeah. We went far away from R.I.P. R.I.P. Bruiser Brody. <laughs> what a good guy. Uh, well, no, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for being able to come in here to the studio. We don't you know, get a chance to sit down face to face with a lot of our guests, so I'm glad we got a chance to sit down. Yeah, no, it was awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you, and good luck in Edinburgh. I appreciate it, man. Thank you, Sophie Santos, for joining us on Entrepreneur Struggle, and thank you for listening. You can learn more about Sophie's work by going to our show notes, which is also how you can learn how to support her throughout her crowdfunding campaign as she continues to tour with her one-woman show. Our show notes are also where you can get more information on how to stay up to date on everything Entrepreneur Struggle. Thank you to my producers, Heather Johnson, Brittany Temple, and Mike DuBose. Thank you for the support from the LinkedIn Podcast Academy. And until next episode, stay safe and healthy because the struggle is real. Mm-hmm.